Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Impact Co. podcast episode. It's me, Nish. I'm back for another finance podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed the entrepreneurship episode. I hope you enjoyed the first episode on Apple. For our next episode, sort of back to normal programming, I'm going to discuss Microsoft today. It's a company that we all should know. Many of us should interact with, even you Apple users out there. It's a company, quite frankly, that's entrenched itself in our lives from a number of different perspectives. The company continues to grow from strength to strength, but the story of Apple, of Microsoft, and how we got here is, I think, crucial to understand. It's had some very specific phases in its lifetime. It hasn't always been the best company to invest in, and I'll talk about that a little bit in the middle of this episode. And I think it just makes for another fantastic investment story. I have to say from an investment perspective, I love the Microsoft company today as it sits and looking forward. I think there's a lot of good opportunities for Microsoft going forward. And I'll talk to that in a second. Just a little calibration from the last episode, though. Two things, sort of sort of health checks and reflections from the last episode. Um, in this episode, I'm trying to get you in and out in 30 minutes. In and out in 30 minutes with a view of the future rather than the past. Apart from that first episode being a touch too long, I think I focused a little bit too much on the past of Apple. And I think for a foundational company like Apple, that's fine. Um, but for most companies, we actually want to focus on the future. You'll remember that I talked actively about the future being far more important than the past when it comes to investing in a company today. You are investing based on future profits, not on the past. I think the past is important but it is the future that is more important from an investing perspective. And I'll unpack that in future episodes. We will discuss the past from a Microsoft perspective, but I want to package it into a very quick segment of this episode, especially the, the, the quite far past when the company first listed and how Bill Gates and Paul Allen started the company. I then want to sort of look at three distinct phases of the Microsoft environment. Uh, the first was in the initial stage where Bill Gates was the CEO. Uh, we're talking from sort of early 80s up to the year 2000. Then a period where Steve Ballmer was CEO from about the year 2000 to about 2014. And then the Satya Nadella years, which is 2014 to now. And that's going to encapsulate the current environment for Microsoft as well as the future. I think it packages it quite nicely because Microsoft has had only three CEOs in their past, which makes it quite convenient. Um, and then, of course, we can start to understand the, the near term and the future and, of course, the far past before they listed. Uh, I think that structure is going to make a lot more sense. And like I said, in and out in 30 minutes with an understanding of what the company does and what the future might hold. From a disclaimer perspective, you should know by now this podcast, my finance podcast in particular, are for information and education purposes. If you're seeking advice for your personal portfolio and advisors, the person to speak to, I wouldn't take investment advice from a podcast. Your personal situation is crucially important. And of course, I may hold stocks in a personal as well as professional capacity. That is something that you need to know uh, when I'm talking about any company, quite frankly. Okay. Uh, reflection of the last episode and disclaimers out of the way, let's get straight into Microsoft. And it's another one of those foundational tech stories that a lot of us like to read and understand and learn about as potential future entrepreneurs because it was an environment where there weren't a lot of big tech companies. They weren't a lot of big tech listed companies. And they sort of set the stage and created the environment for the world that we know 
today. So understanding the relative history allows us to understand not just the past, but where we are today, how we got here, and what the future might hold. So those stories of the past and the sort of generation of Silicon Valley in this case in the tech industry, I think is super important and super crucial. It's another one of those fairy tale stories. So Bill Gates and Paul Allen, the two co-founders of uh, Microsoft, went to high school in Seattle, uh, a private school called, I have the name in front of me, Lakeside School. Uh, and they were quite fortunate at a very young age, they had computers and computers hooked up to mainframes where most schools in the country and probably the world had no access to computers. So they almost had this initial phase where they were out ahead of everyone else learning about this new computer revolution, very much like Steve Wozniak was in the understanding of hardware and graphical user interfaces when Apple was created. So at the age of 13, Bill Gates was creating his first computer program. Paul Allen was a little bit older than him, but the combination of them and a, a few friends spent hours and hours understanding computers, hacking into computers, understanding the programming language. And remember, this isn't a world where no one else was doing this. Uh, you fast forward to where we are in 2023, and it feels like those opportunities don't really exist anymore, that everything's sort of been done already. We, we can't be the first to do something. But that isn't really the case. I'll talk a little bit about AI in the context of right now for Microsoft and the future. And you'll see that at any given point, the world is changing and you can be the first in front of something. Just my little soapbox nugget of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial wisdom there. Um, but yes, you had a few young people who were far harder out, of, out ahead in terms of adults or any professionals in understanding computers. Like I said, Bill Gates made his first computer program at the age of 13. He made a program called Traffo Data, which, which sort of counted traffic data uh, in a number of areas. And he basically gave that over to local governments. For his high school, he created a payroll system um, that sort of the school started to use. Uh, so you can see how they started to build a sort of entrepreneurial spirit around this new world of coding and microcomputers. They leave school and Paul Allen goes to work for a number of companies, including Honeywell. They're still working a number of projects on their own. Uh, and this is where you get one of those those stories, just like Mark Zuckerberg leaving Harvard to start Facebook, where Bill Gates leaves university to focus on the work that he's doing with the then unnamed Microsoft. So at that stage, microcomputers were starting to become a thing. Microcomputers are effectively the computers we use every single day. They're called micro because back in those days, large scale mainframe computers were these large things that took up entire server rooms. So when we started to have computers in our laps and on our desktops and tables, we call them microcomputers. So they started to create programming languages for these microcomputers. Unlike Apple, a number of hardware providers like Altair, which is the pro the, the hardware that, that Gates and Allen created software for, uh, didn't really have software. They didn't go the Steve Jobs, Wozniak, Rook, where hardware and software is packaged together, you just got hardware. So they effectively made a basic adaptation for those microcomputers, which is effectively a programming language that could be used inside the microcomputer to interact with it. And I think this is where they started to realize that if microcomputers existed in all of our homes, there was a very viable business that could be created from that. And this is the start of Microsoft. Microsoft coming from microcomputers, which, is the computers that uh, that were starting to be created, and then soft 
software. So you put microcomputers and software together, you get the word Microsoft. That is where the name comes from. So if you ever wanted. So the basic programming language came from them. The, the big break that they really had was in 1980 when IBM was looking for some sort of programming language, some sort of operating system that could sit into their computers. And if you remember my Apple episode, you'll remember that the big competitors for, for Apple were the likes of IBM, which were creating computers that were cheaper because they weren't sort of all packaged into one. And they were looking sort of for a sort of software provider at the time. And that's where two effectively, well, one dropout from university in Bill Gates and one very young person in Paul Allen with this wealth of programming experience that no one else had, created a language and an operating system for IBM in the year 1980. And from there, it just grew from strength to strength. You had a programming language, you had an operating system, you could interact with a microcomputer. This is where we start to see the development then of further programs that allowed you to better interact with the computer. For example, in 1983, we had our first version of Word. In 1985, we had our first graphical user interface, very much like what Apple was doing with their computers. And that took sort of Microsoft into this domain where they became a more trusted software brand that not only IBM could use, but other hardware providers could use as a software option to go head to head with the likes of Apple. And as I mentioned in my Apple episode, it was the the cheaper packaged option. It was the more versatile packaged option. And quite frankly, it started to dominate. A number of computers came out with the Microsoft software embedded into them. And this is the real start of the business. We're now in sort of 1986, and that's when Microsoft becomes listed for the first time. They raise about $61 million. They continue investing in their business, continue putting out a number of different software products. And in 1987, Bill Gates becomes the youngest billionaire in the world. Now, he's been overtaken a lot by other billionaires. Mark Zuckerberg, for example, became a billionaire in his early 20s when Facebook listed, if I'm not mistaken. But at the age of 31, back in 1987, he was the youngest and you can see how out of relatively nothing, uh, a very simple story from just having access to a computer in high school, we all of a sudden have this tech giant that was able to raise $60 million, which is a lot of money in 1987, and become sort of the, the key component of computers and the computing world at large. Like I say, another fantastic story in the context of the world. Again, they keep developing. Uh, Office and Windows come out in the early 90s. A lot of us interacted uh, with Windows 95 as one of our first operating systems uh, for you young millennials out there. Um, well, older millennials now, I guess. And it sort of grows from strength to strength. The, the internet revolution had sort of started. So in 1995, we saw the first version of Internet Explorer. And I think the Internet Explorer example is a good place to sort of link on another couple, another couple of topics that I'll come to later, like Microsoft Teams, because Internet Explorer was packaged into software. Microsoft Word was packaged into the software, whereas other service providers wanted you to sort of buy a software package that gave you access to the Internet. Microsoft, via their operating system, was bundling software and creating a platform. The idea of a platform is crucial in technology right now, and you'll see why that idea of a platform and bundling is so crucial to the future of Microsoft and why. I think it's a fantastic company. For those of you who hate Internet Explorer and have hated it for years, I'm sorry, but that's when it started, 1995, when the internet revolution started. From there, Microsoft becomes entrenched. We start to have iterations of Windows that come out with a full package software that a lot of us would have interacted with. Uh, after 98, for example, we had 98, 99, XP. 
And when we get to the year 2000, we have our first change in CEO over from from Bill Gates over to Steve Ballmer. Now, Bill Gates stays with the company, stayed for the company for a number of years on the board of directors until finally leaving. But in 2000, he left to become uh, sort of chief software architect, sort of focus on the core product innovation and innovation associated with Microsoft. Steve Ballmer had been at the company for a number of years. Since about 1980, he knew uh, Bill Gates and Paul Allen for a number of years. Even before starting Microsoft, he was a known leader at the company, a hard worker. He understood the corporate culture. He had been crucial in developing sales. So for the day-to-day running of the business, it made sense for Steve Ballmer to take over. If any of you entrepreneurs or becoming entrepreneurs, you'll realize that there will come a stage where the, the, the idea of CEO becomes less attractive than it used to be. When we think CEO, we think sort of taking the business into the next revolution. But often the task of a CEO is the day-to-day management and overseeing of people. And a lot of people who build successful businesses don't want to do that. So it made sense, at least for me, that Gates stepped down because he focused more on the product and left the management of the business over to Steve Ballmer. A very similar thing happened at Apple when Steve Jobs stepped down for the first time uh, and the old Pepsi CEO took over. So it is a very natural thing. And I think it made a lot of sense at the time for Microsoft. But this is where we get to sort of the, the rockier phase of Microsoft's life. Remember that Windows is still there. Windows XP came out in 2000 and it was extremely successful. Microsoft was doing exceptionally well, but it was a phase of the computer generation where a lot of things were happening very, very quickly. And this is where Microsoft started to fall behind a number of their competitors. Now, you know from my previous episode that Apple created a number of products in the computer space, in the laptop space, eventually in the phone and tablet space. But let's put them against Google in the context of this conversation. Throughout the years from 2000 to sort of uh, 2014, when Nadella became CEO, Google started to make strides in areas where Microsoft didn't make the best investment decision and started to fall behind quite quickly. For example, um, on search, remember Google had Internet Explorer. Google was starting to dominate there. So even though Uh, Microsoft had Internet Explorer. Google was dominating the Internet revolution and Microsoft never really kept up. They stayed in that operating system game. Internet Explorer didn't give them the leap pad that they needed. We know that Google came out with Chrome browser, which sort of embedded Google in the browsing of the Internet and actually allowed Internet Explorer to slip behind, which was a little bit of a failure. That, however, wasn't as big as other things where they fell behind. So, you know from my previous episode that Apple released a phone in around 2007. Google released the Android operating system in 2008. And that's where Google now competes directly with Apple in a much more successful way than Microsoft does. If you think about what happened with IBM back in 1980, you would have expected Microsoft to dominate in the phone space like they did in the computer space where they don't do hardware, but they can do the software and then compete with Apple. They completely missed that boat. In fact, they partnered with Nokia and tried to install a Windows software into that phone. That failed miserably. Um, So Microsoft missed a tremendous opportunity to become the the Android phone software provider, which never really happened. Um, On the other side, Google was creating web-based tools like Gmail, which was competing with Outlook, uh, Sheets and other things where you you could use 
certain software online rather than needing an operating system. So via the Chrome browser, you could start to have a word processor, a PowerPoint service, a, a, a spreadsheet service or tool. Um, and it started to seem like if the internet revolution continued, that Google would start to dominate and maybe take over Microsoft market share. Now, thankfully, Microsoft actually continued to do well with their desktop-based operating systems. Web-based never really caught on as much as it, I guess, could have in the early 2000s. But Microsoft definitely fell behind in a number of segments where they really could have grown. Uh, the cloud is another area that be started to become crucially important. Um, and Microsoft was behind a bit on cloud, but you'll see that when Satya Nadella became CEO and they started focusing on cloud, that we're now in the next revolution for, for Microsoft where they are actually starting to dominate. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, during that time, Steve Ballmer was CEO and, and he made strategic decisions like choosing to partner with Nokia. He was in charge as CEO of the development of Windows Vista, which didn't do really well. His leadership style sometimes became a little bit abrasive. And I think over the 14 year period, the, the business just realized that there was a need for change. The one thing that I want to say, though, that is not commented on enough, I think, in the context of Steve Ballmer's role at Microsoft is a number of good things and the number of important things that he put in place that only bore fruit later in the decade and then the next decade, which is the sort of 2010s when Satya Nadella became CEO. And there's four things that I want to talk about specifically. Firstly, they started Xbox in 2001. A lot of you might not know this, but Microsoft actually owns Xbox, so owns the gaming company. Um, so it sits inside Microsoft, which might seem strange, but it actually is a really nice lever for diversification, which we'll discuss in a, in a little bit. Azure, which some of you might have heard before, is, is the sort of cloud arm of Microsoft, whether it comes to enterprise services or just sort of office services. And the cloud was sort of pioneered by Steve Ballmer. Satya Nadella was in charge of that unit for many, many years, along with the enterprise division. And the cloud right now for Microsoft and a number of other companies, but I think pivotally for Microsoft is crucially important. Um, he also focused on enterprise. And that's where Apple is really good as a consumer product, but they really struggle to entrench themselves in the, the office-based world. Uh, and this is physical office-based world where Microsoft is the go-to operating system from an employee perspective, from an employer perspective. And I think Balmer realized that and entrenched that as part of their service offering. Uh, and under him, quite frankly, revenues did double. There were very strong financials associated with his time as CEO. But like I say, it could have been so much more successful. So we get to 2014 and, and we're now in the sort of Satya Nadella world. And if you want to think about why he was elected as CEO at the time, he was also a Microsoft veteran. had been there for more than 20 years. He was head of two very crucial divisions that I think Microsoft realized was going to be important for the next 20 years of their lives. And that is the cloud business as well as the enterprise business. And a little bit differently to Balmer, he was a collaborative and quite inclusive leader. And I think that was important for this next phase of Microsoft as they started to think of the world outside of just the Windows operating system and Office. And I think that that sort of collaborative, future-focused, innovative style that Satya Nadella brings was pivotal to creating the Microsoft that we have to today. 
Now, Satya was also lucky from a couple of perspectives. He did make good investment decisions in these two things, but something started to happen that, that wasn't the case in the previous 20 years of software. And that's something called software as a service. In terms of how we interact with Microsoft, you bought a computer, you bought a version of Windows, and say you spent a thousand rand for that version of Windows, you then realistically never really updated that version of Windows, and you never really had to pay Windows for anything until you probably got the next computer, or if you really wanted to upgrade your software for whatever reason. So Microsoft for a long time had this very lumpy cash flow, this very lumpy revenue model embedded into their business. It was the very successful part of their business, but the lumpiness was the problem. Software as a service or SaaS, S-A-A-S, is the new world for software where you actually get something called a recurring revenue stream. If you think about how we interact with Microsoft today, I'm talking about corporate clients, myself as an individual, probably many of you, you don't just pay Microsoft once every five years. You actually pay them on a monthly recurring basis. I pay Microsoft in South African rands, about 99 rand a month for access to my sort of documents, spreadsheets, everything on the cloud. I then get access to continual updates from Microsoft and all of their products. I get cloud storage of up to a terabyte. Um, and that combination of products, especially the cloud and being able to use uh, the, the Microsoft tools on all my devices, including my phone, I'm now willing to pay 100 grand a month for um, versus just interacting with them once every five years. If you add that up, that costs about 1,200 grand a year, just quick maths. Um, that's way more money than I would have paid Microsoft in a five-year period, let alone a one-year period. And that's not just the case for Microsoft. We're now starting to pay companies like Netflix on a monthly basis. We're starting to pay for our news on a monthly basis. We're starting to pay for other apps and services on a monthly basis. So the software generation has changed a lot over the last five to 10 years where we as a consumer base are more willing to spend money on a monthly basis rather than buying something once, keeping it for five years and then maybe switching. Um, something like Adobe, for example, and all the editing software is, is exactly the same. We used to just buy Adobe editing software, keep it for a very long time, and then buy the new one five, 10 years later when there was some real change. Now editors pay on a monthly basis. Um, so that change in software was important. It meant that Satya and Microsoft could, could now create a recurring revenue stream that really built up and made a very strong revenue model for them. And this is both on the enterprise side and the consumer side. Were they lucky that that environment became the case? Yes, but they have definitely invested in that environment to make it even better today. Uh, the other thing, and this is associated with software, surface, uh, software as a service, is the rise of the cloud. The cloud sort of lubricated software as a service where to get access to all the things we want on the cloud at any point across multiple devices, we had to start to pay these companies on a monthly basis. Um, from a Microsoft perspective, Microsoft specific perspective, the cloud service is called Azure. And like I said, it's of the enterprise and consumers. 
And it helps with everything from security, from app development and deployment. Enterprises can understand network infrastructure. They can understand data management. They can do data analytics. It allows for storage of data, disaster recovery, recovery, business continuity. All these buzzwords become associated with the cloud. And if you're an enterprise, if you want access to all of those things, you're going to pay Microsoft on a monthly basis. I remember talking to the IT guy at, at my company, and we had the same. We never really paid Microsoft much before. For. But now we pay them on a monthly basis for all of the cloud security, analytics, and networking that Microsoft allows us to do. So that's sort of the change in Microsoft over a number of years. All of a sudden, the legacy business looks very, very interesting and very, very attractive. So let's talk about for the last few minutes, what makes Microsoft a good investment? Why I think that they've got the right combination of tools and services and why their share price is reflective of that. Now, Microsoft is broken down into three different revenue streams if you look at their financial statements and the names are completely random, quite frankly. I'll talk to you about financial statements, 10 Qs and 10 Ks and things in another podcast episode. But for the sake of this conversation, the three segments are, and I'm, I'm reading it here, productivity and business processes, one, intelligent cloud is the other, and then more personal computing is the third. Three very random names, it would seem. In terms of how the revenue is broken down into those three segments, they're pretty much equal. So about 40% comes from Intelligent Cloud, around 30% from productivity and business, and rounding to around 30% for more personal computing. That diversification is nice, just off bat. You remember me talking about how iPhone was too big a part of Apple's revenue? That's not the case for Microsoft. But what's inside those three business segments? So let me just call it out for you again. In productivity and business processes, the businesses that sit inside that are the Office Commercial Package. So that's Office 365, Teams, 365 Security. So all your sort of Office-related products like PowerPoint and spreadsheets, etc. Inside that also sits LinkedIn, which I'll come to in a second. I think that's very interesting from a Microsoft perspective, uh, as well as other business solutions that you could have access to. The next segment is Intelligent Cloud, and this is where a lot of important stuff sits, if you sort of got my context on the cloud just now. So Azure sits in there, everything related to putting stuff onto the cloud. And that includes all the enterprise services and consulting because Microsoft can come into your business and help you to understand how to get the most out of Azure and most of the cloud. And then you've got more, more personal computing, which is another random subtitle. But what sits inside more personal computing is the Windows operating system. So you can see they've separated Windows and Office into two different products, into different segments. You've got devices like the Surface and PC accessories. I don't have time to talk about devices right now, but I will put out a reel where I talk about why everyone has devices all of a sudden, including Microsoft. It's a sort of relatively small part of their business right now. Um, you then have gaming, which is Xbox and all Xbox related services. Like I mentioned, Xbox sits in, has sat inside Microsoft since the year 2000 now. Uh, and then you have search. So things like Bing, Internet Explorer, which comes with advertising revenue, news, and of course, everything associated with that. So those are the three operating segments that you have inside Microsoft. In terms of how they've grown over a period from sort of 2016 to now, I pulled data out of their, their corporate reporting for the last sort of six years or so, sort of seven years, to see how those different segments have grown inside 
those three segments. The, the largest growth component and now the largest sub-segment of their business is the server products and cloud services business. And that's not surprising to me because it is the part of the business that is receiving a lot of revenue right now as businesses start to take their operating models into the cloud. The second largest is office products and cloud services. So things, everything relating to the cloud and the enterprise and the consumer is what is growing and what is dominating in terms of revenue. Like I said, I have a subscription to Microsoft so that I can have access to my notes and to all of my, my sort of files on the cloud. And a number of enterprises are doing exactly the same thing. Uh, we've seen 20% growth in server products in the cloud, so that's your more enterprise systems, and about 10% revenue growth over a number of years for the office products and cloud services, which is a very, very healthy the clip in terms of other like really strong growth areas gaming has been an important growth reven growth revenue driver for microsoft i think gaming is interesting and we'll probably come to it more in a different from a different company's perspective when we start to get down into other company reporting but if you think about eyeballs on something when you're relaxing traditionally our our sort of parents and grandparents would watch the TV or read the newspaper. We're interacting with media in a dramatically different way. The stats on how much we game versus how much we watch television is completely flipped around. We spend way more time on the internet on apps like TikTok. We spend a lot more time gaming. We spend a lot more time listening to podcasts. than we do watching traditional television. Um, so I think gaming has grown dramatically in a number of years. I'm going to put out a reel actually on the growth in the gaming industry. So to have exposure to gaming, I think is super crucial. And Microsoft has Xbox, of course, and everything related to Xbox, but they also have cloud computing gaming now. So you can see how the different areas of their business are starting to interact with each other. So I think apart from the cloud, apart from Office, apart from enterprise, which I'm all very excited about, I think those business units are entrenched in our lives and I think they're not going anywhere. I think that areas like gaming make a hell of a lot of sense for Microsoft. Another area for Microsoft that I, I find very interesting right now is search advertising. So companies like Google generate all their revenue from the advertising that happens on the Google website more than anything else. And of course, YouTube would sit inside Google. We'll get to that when we get to Google. Microsoft tries to do the same thing with Bing. But for a long time, Bing was sort of the ugly cousin of Google. But Microsoft, and you may have heard this, have made an important investment in a company called OpenAI, which has created the language model ChatGPT, which we've all now started to interact with. And I think it's just another example of how Satya Dell and Microsoft have looked in a different direction and found an avenue of growth that is very, very exciting. I think if you ask anyone two years ago, nothing would have taken over Google from a search perspective and therefore an advertising perspective in digital revenue. But OpenAI and ChatGPT and all of the AI that Microsoft's now able to leverage is going into Bing. People are using Bing for the first time like they never have before. So we're seeing a lot of revenue growth potential in search and in, because of something like artificial intelligence. Search in and of itself has grown quite quite pedestrianly. Uh, it's grown by about four percentage points. But I think the growth that we could see in the future is important. I also think AI is going to help a number of other areas of Microsoft's business. But I think search is the biggest benefactor. And then one that I think doesn't get talked about a lot is LinkedIn. LinkedIn has become a super crucial business. The business generates about $14 billion in revenue. To put that in context, 
Twitter generates about $5 billion in revenue. So even though LinkedIn sits inside Microsoft, it's generating three times the revenue of Twitter. And if you think about all the, the scandal involved with social media right now, it's an effect on the lives of youth. Um, and I'll bucket myself in youth for the sake of this conversation. I think that LinkedIn is the one safe social media platform that everyone uses in a very conscious and conservative way because it's our professional life. And I think Microsoft understood that when they bought LinkedIn. I think it doesn't really fit with the other business segments, but LinkedIn is doing fantastically well. It's grown by about 35% per annum over the last five years, which is a fantastic track. And I think it, like I said, is the one social media network that will continue to do well into the future. Um, so if you just look at the combination of things there, you've got server and office linked to the cloud that is continuing to do well is the bulk of Microsoft revenue. They don't have much competition in that space because they offer a platform service. And I think that's where they can do exceptionally well. You got things like gaming, Windows, LinkedIn, search, enterprise services in general that all have done well in their own right and start to sort of create this entire large platform of strong growth. I think where Apple relies significantly on the iPhone, I think that Microsoft has a product that is more entrenched than the iPhone, that is more defensive than the iPhone, and that is growing quite dramatically because of this change in software as a service and the cloud that is going to dominate in a much more structured manner than the iPhone will. And then they've got these sort of subcategories like gaming and LinkedIn and search that are also growing in their own right for a number of different reasons. So you've got this nice this nice conglomerate of growth and diversification. And that's really why I like the Microsoft business and I love the, the leadership that Satya Nadella has provided that business. My last point is on platforms. I think there's a big buzzword and a big buzz topic around platforms in general right now. And the idea is that if you have a business that offers a variety of different services and a bundle that a consumer could get the, the benefit of or the advantage of, it's better. Think about Dropbox. Dropbox gave you online storage, but that's all it gave you. Spotify gives you access to music, but that's all it gives you. Microsoft as a package right now can give you storage, can give you gaming, can give you access to a number of different software services. Um, I think that combination of things packaged together in a platform is important. Think about something like Teams. A company called Slack has the same type of software available, but it's the only software they offer. Whereas Teams comes fully packaged into an operating system that gives you OneNote and spreadsheets and PowerPoint and a cloud access. And a number of companies are trying to do platforms. Everyone is. Um, but I think Microsoft is the one company that is really doing platforms exceptionally well. If you want to understand why Apple now have a phone and a tablet and a computer and Apple TV, and as well as that cloud storage in their own form, they're trying to create a platform. I think, though, that Microsoft's platform across all their different sub-segments is a much more strong and defensible operating unit. And I really do believe Microsoft's a great company to invest in for the long term. Uh, it, I've always quoted myself as saying Microsoft's one of those companies I want to hold for the next 10 years. Um, again, I might hold a stock in my own professional, personal capacity. Don't invest in stocks without looking at your situation and seeking financial advice. This is not advice for you to invest in Microsoft. Having said all that, I want to bring our episode to an end. I hope this was punchier than the previous episode. I'm looking at a sort of stopwatch I have on the side and I have <laughs> run out of time, but I think we're trending in the right direction. We've covered two very big technology companies right now. We're going to sort of move in that direction, but I also want to bring in 
elements of investment knowledge that that I think will be important. So for the next episode, I'm thinking about talking about how to build portfolios of stocks like Microsoft and Apple, discuss the concept of diversification and start to build out our knowledge a little bit more. It's going to be the combination of understanding companies, understanding current news and understanding financial concepts that is crucial. So we've done a couple of companies now. Let's start to explore a couple of the other things. If you've got to this point in the video or in the podcast, if you're listening to me, I really, really appreciate you listening to it. I hope you've got some good nuggets of information on it. Please interact with us how you can. You can rate and review us on the podcast platforms. You can comment on YouTube or on our social media platforms like Instagram. And we're now on TikTok, of course. So you can interact with us there. Uh, There'll be a few reels coming out explaining some of the concepts that I didn't have time to touch on today. Uh, But that's the end. Hopefully I got you in and out on Microsoft and you have a good sense of what this company does. Till next time, everyone, stay safe and have a happy time. Goodbye.